0: I have never referred to myself as a leader, but I do accept the title of change agent because I think that is what my voice is meant to do, is to change, to make things better, to create change that's sustainable and shows progress. Now, having said that, you know, I also recognize that I can't be predictable in that because I'm black and female and osteopathic and now elderly. So people think they know where I'm going to come from. So one of the things I had to learn was that words were important, how you have to engage people. And it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about moving forward.
1: This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. In today's conversation, I speak with Dr. Barbara Ross Lee. To be clear, listeners, I was a bit starstruck during this conversation. Before we got started, we had a pre-meet. And during that pre-meet, number one, I asked her what she would like me to call her. And she said, call me Barbara. So when you hear me speak to her in a first name basis, it's only after first getting permission out of respect. You're also going to hear me ask her age. And I asked her, is it okay if I ask your age? And she said, sure. During that pre-meet, she said, Risa, why do you want to speak with me? And I said, Barbara, why would I not want to speak with you? You are a legend, and I've been hearing about you since I started medical school in 1992. So a little bit about Barbara. She's the first African-American woman to serve as the dean of a United States medical school. That was Ohio University- Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine from 1993 to 2001. She's the first osteopathic physician to participate in the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship. She served as a commissioned officer in the United States Naval Reserve's Medical Corps, where she achieved the rank of captain. She's the recipient of nine honorary degrees and many national awards. Most recently, the ACGME annual diversity, equity, and inclusion award was named in her honor. It is the Barbara Rossley DODEI award. When we get to the conversation, I've asked Barbara about her childhood and her can-do attitude. You grew up in Detroit. You are the eldest of six children, and you early on made this decision to pursue education and healthcare. Share a little bit more about that.
0: I think it was based upon, you know, the circumstances of growing up poor in the city of Detroit. And it was at a time when opportunities were very, very limited, you know. And so you gain a perspective on I had to decide whether to let the environment define me or whether I needed to be who I wanted to be. And I was fortunate and privileged to have parents who would allow me to be and do what I wanted to do. As the eldest, as a girl,
1: there wasn't the, you can do this, you cannot do that? None, absolutely none. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You earned admission to Albion University and you ended up going to Wayne State. Tell us about that. Well, I won a national
0: merit scholarship to Albion, but it was tuition only. And again, going back to the economic basis, I couldn't afford to accept the scholarship. So therefore, and it was really at the last minute, I realized my mom and my dad both tried to find some way to fund my going on to Albion and they couldn't. And at the last minute, I applied to Wayne State University, which was local and I could commute and that's where I went.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of your path, your journey that really highlights Some aspects of education and becoming a physician and healthcare that is still relevant rings true today. So, for example, someone may get admission to a university, but if you pay their tuition but don't help with books, help with living expenses, what have you done?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, when we hear students talking about the debt load today, we still don't have a way of handling some of those day-to-day living issues that have a cost attached to them, you know, which is part of what I'm looking at. You can borrow money for a scholarship, but who's going to pay the water bill? And so we have to look at our students and the pathway as a journey And it's not a journey that's easily paved. It's not a straight shot. There are challenges along the way because we are people too, and we have lives too.
1: Mm -hmm. After university, you, and I may not have this order correct, so walk us through this. You were a medical technician. You ended up pursuing education. In fact, you obtained a master's of education. Among a few other lanes and pathways, you did end up in the second class at Michigan State in 1970.
0: I describe my journey in a football analogy, which is a broken field run. And as with the the football analogy, I had a team who was helping, but they weren't. I was the one that was out front and trying to make things happen. The first thing I learned was with a bachelor's degree in biology and chemistry, There aren't a lot of jobs there, or at least at that time, on the market for those particular skills. And so I had an opportunity of working in a hospital laboratory, happened to be an osteopathic hospital, which was my first experience with osteopathic medicine. And while there, and by the way, we talk about glass ceilings. I learned everything there was to learn in that hospital laboratory, and then there was no place to go. At the same time, uh, President Kennedy created not only the Peace Corps, but the National Teacher Corps. My husband was a teacher, so I thought this was an opportunity. I would join the National Teacher Corps, get my master's degree, and teach K-12 and have summers off with my husband. What can I say? Yeah, (laughs) And so that's how the master's degree came about. And the teacher corps had a real commitment to underserved educational needs of underserved populations. And so it was a good match, a good match. And in fact, it fed into my long-term dreams, which were either to be a teacher or a physician. So I got a chance to be both.
1: How did that offer of admission to Michigan State occur? It came about through some people
0: that I had worked with at Martin Place Hospital, osteopathic in Madison Heights, Michigan. They were involved in supporting the start of this new osteopathic medical school. They were recruiting students and they got in touch with me and said, would you be interested? Now, this was like March or April of the same year that I was supposed to start. So I had to sign up and take the MCAT within two weeks in order to qualify for admission. That was fun. And I had to make up a deficit in physics. So I got in touch with a professor at Wayne State and told him, could you give me four hours of directed study in physics so I can get in? And I did, and I got in.
1: This can-do attitude that permeates you, your personality, your work ethic, your journey, where did it come from?
0: Family. Family. Especially the women in my family who were just can-do people,
1: you know? Yeah. Listeners are wondering, I'm wondering, how old are you? I am 81 years old. Yeah. Do you feel 81?
0: No. And I only started to even... Remembering that I was 81 because my children continue to remind me, not the people I work with. They wouldn't dare.
1: (laughs) How old do you feel? I don't know. Uh, 60. And have you liked aging? I haven't
0: found anything to dislike. I will tell you for the first time when I turned 80, all at once, I recognized that people in professional settings react to my elderly posture the same way they used to, to my being black and female. You know, it's like all at once, there's a different interaction that they extend to me. So it's funny. Tell us more. Well, I happened to visit an ophthalmologist. There was a third year ophthalmology resident who was rotating with this ophthalmologist. And I, I'd never met her before. She walked in and she says, here, sweetie, come sit over here. She knew, she knew she had said the wrong thing. Can you believe that? And we do that kind of stuff. You know, Uh, that's all part of kind of the, the social, cultural context that we live in, that she felt comfortable. And I challenged her. I said, what would make you think you could call me sweetie? And she said, she calls all her female patients, sweetie, and they like it. I said, I doubt if they like it, but at least I'm the first one to tell you they don't like it. They have names. And you if you value or respect them, use their names.
1: Bill Bradley. And Bill Bradley as related to Barbara Ross Lee. So let me just fill in the audience. In 1991, you became the first osteopathic physician fellow of the RWJ, the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellowship. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, that situation sort of changed everything for you professionally. It did. It gave me a view
0: of possibilities. It also gave me a perspective on where the real underlying issues in healthcare lie and how they require policy changes to fix them because we spend a lot of time with individual issues and that's progress. But fundamentally, we have some really structural problems to our healthcare system. And we can work all day dealing with all kinds of issues, telemedicine being one. But until the system is structured to focus on the health of the population, then we're not going to be as successful as we should be or could be. I call that, mm-hmm. and the people in the profession laugh at me. I call that we gotta get to the high ground. Yeah.
1: And your relationship with Bill Bradley, who I knew because of basketball.
0: <laughs> yes. Such a bright man and such a good heart. Such a good heart. And he had, because of his experiences in basketball and internationally, He was one of those people who understood the problem as it related to women, as it related to minorities. He understood the problem of the inequities that become a part of the daily lives of underrepresented minorities. And so it was such a great experience. And I chose his office, by the way, because I was going to choose Michigan. That's what I knew was Michigan. But the senator from Michigan was embroiled in some issues at the time. And so I wanted to select an office where the senator sat on the finance committee, which is where Medicare and Medicaid are flow from. And New Jersey was one of those states that I could choose a senator from. And New Jersey has similar issues and problems as Michigan. So that's how I'll I chose Senator Bradley and how he chose and accepted me as a part of his team.
1: Yeah. So in addition to your clinical practice, you started your research health policy practice really looking at vulnerable populations. And you've spoken about elderly, uninsured, underinsured. Can you tell us a little bit more detail?
0: We're all aware of the literature and it gives you all the data on disparities. But it wasn't until I started my own private practice that I had to try and navigate those barriers to help my patients. So my perspective was not trying to become an accepted member of the hierarchy of medicine, but my perspective was to be a voice for those people that the system didn't adequately serve.
1: In the emergency department, patients come in. We don't check their socioeconomic status at the door. We don't ask about insurance. We take care of everybody. However, where I see things start to separate out is when it comes to planning for discharge. It makes a difference sometimes if patients get admitted to the hospital or they're told they can come back and follow up as an outpatient Do they get taken to the operating room right away or is there a delay? Can they fill their prescriptions? Can they not? Can they get an appointment with a specialist or do they have to go to the clinic where the appointment isn't for six more months? So through that lens and in your experience, where does this access and privilege play a role? We understand that continuity
0: is important to healthcare and health maintenance. But at the same time, That's not how our system is structured to deliver it. And so if you don't have the economic wherewithal to be able to engage in that continuity of care, then health care becomes episodic. And that's what we see in underserved and underinsured and poor communities. It's episodic care. Okay, and the worst thing of all is to get the care and not be able to get what you need to treat that diagnosis. And that exists a lot more commonly than we want to recognize. The structure of our system, as much as we admire what we can deliver, we are not delivering it to the population that we serve.
1: Moreover, and I wanted to use the word moreover right there, people have said that we have a sick care system, not a health care system. And what you just shared about episodic care and financial literacy, healthcare care literacy, bingo. This is part of the problem with the way our health care system was built.
0: Years ago, when I was doing a lot of international training, one of my colleagues from India pointed out that all of the data that we collect about health status and health care is billing data. It is not patient data. And that is such a fundamental problem of the system. And now I'm terrified. We're going to start using AI and algorithms that are based upon billing data. And you and I both know every physician will say, no matter what you see in your interaction with that patient, what you put in the chart is what gets paid for, not necessarily a comprehensive view of the patient that you just treated.
1: I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis, dropping in to tell you about a book that Dr. Adair Landry and I wrote. It's called Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact. It's a business self-help book being published in April of 2024 by HarperCollins. We believe every future goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that you can practice and then excel by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work and in life. You can pre order it now. Go to bookshop.org, amazon.com, or wherever you buy your books. All right, let's get to a very important year 1993. You became the first. African American woman dean to administer a med school in the United States, you were the first Black woman dean of a medical school.
0: And I didn't know it, by the way. I didn't know it until months later when the Association of Family Practitioners sent out a notice in their newsletter that I was the first Black female dean of a medical school. I didn't know that. I never aspired to be a dean of a medical school. I did, however, aspire to accepting positions that amplified my voice. And that position amplified my voice.
1: The listeners are now like nudging me, nudging me, nudging me because I have two questions I ask my guests and you just set me up perfectly. Barbara, when did you realize that you had a voice? When did you start using that voice? I realized that
0: I had a voice or that I needed a voice as a medical student. I recognized that I had a voice once I began interacting with patients because patients needed for me to have a voice. Physicians didn't need for me to have a voice, but patients did. And it was an opportunity for me to really serve that community that had been there for me. And so all of my experiences have been to provide a voice for the people we serve, not for the profession that I'm in, it's for the people we serve. And when you look at it from that perspective, you get a better view of the things that need to change in the healthcare system. So, you know, one of the things that I hear all the time now from the medical students, every medical student you talk to is a leader, by the way, you know, that's the new phrase. I hate the word I'm starting to, I have never referred to myself as a leader, but I do accept the title of change agent because I think that is what my voice is meant to do, is to change, to make things better, to create change that's sustainable and shows progress. Now, having said that, you know, I also recognize that I can't be predictable in that because I'm black and female and osteopathic and now elderly. So people think they know where I'm going to come from. So one of the things I had to learn was that words were important, how you have to engage people. And it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about moving forward. Yeah.
1: I want to go back. You said in med school, you realized you had a voice. Were there any specific scenarios you recall? My voice in
0: medical school was with my colleagues. We were in a small class and they truly did not understand the issues related to disparities of underrepresented populations. And so they would come to me and ask the most naive questions you ever want to hear. You know, I had two children, two babies when I started medical school. My daughter was a year old, and my son was three, and I had one of my uh, classmates come up to me and said, "You adopted those kids, right?" I said, "What? You adopted those kids because if you have children, you're supposed to weigh much more than you weigh, so you couldn't have." And you know the naivete of that, and that was when I realized. That I needed to have a voice of common sense because, mm-hmm. you know, these were yeah, medical students still are young adults. They haven't had life mm-hmm. experiences and they're coming at the issues from their own perspective, their only experiences. And like Einstein, the more perspectives you have, the better you are, you can achieve excellence if you speak to one another. So that's when I developed my voice and talking to my classmates, my colleagues.
1: I want to dovetail off of something you shared about speaking words, two phrases you have shared in other interviews. You are what you communicate, and learn how to navigate assumptions and biases. Those two things go together.
0: The first lecture I ever received in medical school, well intentioned, the instructor said, you are what you communicate. Well, think about that. I walk into a healthcare setting. They'd never had a female medical student before. They had never had a minority medical student before. So it didn't matter what I did. Their stereotypes, their biases were immediately laid upon me. So it didn't matter what. And that, by the way, help me to start my voice, I had to become comfortable with me. I could not depend on the external environment to define who I was and my competency. I couldn't trust them. I had to make myself more competent than anybody around me.
1: Do you remember doing anything specific to develop that confidence because no one outside you was going to provide that for you? As I talked to my CFO today. Part of
0: it was to focus on policy, not politics, never played the professional politics. I could not win anything by trying to make friends in a profession that didn't look like me and didn't understand me. So it was all about the policies or the programs. It was not about making friends with colleagues in order to make things happen. It's not about the politics.
1: Yeah, very, very, very powerful and illustrative to our listeners. And that ties into something you and I pre-met and talked about and is important for us to share today in our conversation, and that's affirmative action. So Thursday, June 29th, 2023, colleges and universities may no longer factor race into admissions after the Supreme Court ruled six to three to end affirmative action in a consolidated decision handed down? It probably will not because
0: medicine has gone through a series of quotas. And we are very much dependent on undergraduate institutions for our students. It is going to start to limit the number of undergraduate students that would qualify or aspire to going to medicine. So it's going to have an impact. I tell my medical students, learn the rules. You don't have to agree with them. You got to learn the rules. Because if you don't know the rules, you can't figure out how to use the rules to achieve what it is you want to achieve. And from my perspective, I think that we need to reframe the way we look at diversity. Affirmative action isn't there anymore. We have to reframe diversity to being a measure of excellence, not just numbers or affirmative action. We cannot achieve excellence in healthcare without including diverse perspectives, not for a population that's diverse. And so we've got to reframe the discussion.
1: Do you have specifics on how we can do and enforce that reframing?
0: I use a four-step process. First, you have to identify the issue or the problem. Second, you have to understand the etiology and impact of that issue or that problem. Third, you have to find or identify people who can relate to the problem. And then fourth, you have to identify people who can relate to the solutions to the problem. And I can tell you right now in the reframing, we're still caught on steps one and two. We need to make excellent health care for all an aspiration, an aspiration that people can relate to. But if we just make it so there are minority health disparities, but I'm not a minority, it's you know not my problem. So it's time for us to reframe it as to focusing on the excellence that this country can deliver in health care. And how we then compare with the rest of the world, because right now we don't compare well at all. And this is America. Come on. Our yeah. population health is low. It's not good at all. We spend more than anybody else per person. So come on, we can do better. But let's reframe it from a problem to an aspiration. Let's be what America can be in healthcare. Yeah.
1: Physician-patient racial concordance helps with better patient outcomes. And one of my concerns with this Supreme Court ruling and what you shared is it's going to affect colleges. That means our premeds, premeds pre-meds who end up applying to med school, get into med school. So what do you see as how this is going to affect the pipeline of Black and brown students getting into medical school?
0: I think we look at the admissions process differently. We've made it a competitive process. Which requires then something like affirmative action to level the playing field. Get rid of the competition. We can determine through all of the science of our behaviors, we can determine who is suited for medical education without making it a competitive process. The board, what is it, the USMLE has now gone to pass fail? Okay, why not the MCAT? In fact. I'm part of a group that's opening a medical school at Morgan State University in HBCU. We are not using the MCATs. We need the results of the MCAT to help inform the undergraduate institution as to the rigor and quality of their science education and preparation. But right now, it's the student who's the victim of a poor preparation. So let's kind of reframe how we're looking at the issues. It's not a student issue, it's an education issue. So let's make it an education issue and let's admit students who we feel will address population health and that includes more minorities to treat a diverse society. That's how you get to health excellence.
1: Can you speak more about HBCUs and med schools and the opening of medical schools?
0: The Morgan State Initiative is the first HBCU medical school initiative in 50 years, in 50 years. We're talking, if you start counting from Flexner, it's a terrible situation. Okay. Now, having said that, HBCUs have become the pathway opportunity for many minorities and diverse minorities. And so let's use that pathway to create a population of physicians that can raise the health status of the entire country. So that's what we're doing at Morgan State.
1: Of what accomplishment, award, honor are you most proud?
0: The accomplishment that I'm most proud of is the formation of the Health Policy Fellowship Program, the Osteopathic Health Policy Fellowship Program, after I completed the RWJ fellowship that fellowship became the pipeline for leadership for the entire osteopathic profession and that leadership pipeline has contributed to the fact that osteopathic medicine that was at a point when I started medical school of just disappearing it's the pathway that has contributed to the rapid and effective Growth of osteopathic medicine when we're in a country that has had health professional shortages forever, forever. So that's the thing I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of. At one point, about 80% of the deans of the osteopathic schools had completed that one year program. So I'm really very proud of that program.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. For listeners that aren't medical or aren't as read in allopathic and osteopathic, how do you give the general audience an understanding of the complementary and contrasting nature of these two paths of medical education?
0: Osteopathic medicine began with a philosophy that all human beings deserved healthcare. And that happened at a time when the science was not what the science is today but the observations were that the human body has the ability to heal itself and that as a physician, we should help that healing. It doesn't take a physician to identify disease. A physician has a responsibility to heal. And it's that kind of human-centered approach that has informed osteopathic medicine over the last, what, hundred years, 125 years now, I think. The difference is fundamentally in philosophy, although, you know, we don't have a philosophy class in osteopathic medicine, but it's based upon our teaching the students how to interact with patients. And part of that is that we spend a lot of time in osteopathic medicine, teaching osteopathic or osteopathic medical students how to use their hands, how to use their hands to diagnose. I mean, I can palpate a lesion that most MDs couldn't even begin to come close to. To use their hands to diagnose, to use their hands to treat musculoskeletal problems, which is what most people think about when they hear osteo, which is bone. But more than that, we use our hands to communicate caring with the patient, osteopathic physicians touch their patients. They just don't go in at the bedside getting a verbal history, which is why the issue of telemedicine is going to be a challenge. How do we bring that touch into that process? Because it's that touch that creates a feeling of caring in the patient, as well as a sense of trust. You trust somebody who touches you. And so we have challenges ahead. We have played what we do short in some venues, but the difference is just the hands and how we interact with patients. The science is the same, the courses are the same, the diagnoses, the diseases, the critical thinking, All of that's the same. It's the hands. We have that
1: added tool. At one point, I was thinking of becoming a surgeon and I was visiting my hometown and I contacted the surgeon, the otorhinolaryngologist, the ear, nose, throat surgeon, and I asked him if I could shadow him because I wanted to understand what community practice would be like. And he was super excited, super generous with his time, in addition to office hours coming into the operating room with him so we went to change to go into the operating room and the two doors said doctors and nurses there was no men women for changing room and toilet facilities it was doctors nurses and that is analogous to your experience going through training
0: absolutely there were no facilities for women so i changed with the nurses now having said that i also actually i keep threatening to write this book on my own, but not alone. The nurses had my back in medicine. They stood up for me because, again, I was working in an environment that was heavy with stereotypes and prejudices, and they covered me. I knew that at least I would get a fair shake with the nurses. So, yeah. What
1: keeps you up at night? I sleep like a baby. <laughs>
0: I'll tell you what keeps if there's an issue and I don't have a plan or I can't come up with a strategy for addressing it I can't go to sleep until I have a plan your legacy I want my legacy to be that I was an example of all of the groups the underrepresented groups that I am a a member of, a part of, and that my example identifies the potential resource for health care of this population and not to be marginalized because of all of those specific characteristics. Black, female, osteopathic, family practice, elderly, all of those things parent. So I want my legacy to be an example of a change agent that can result from all of these underrepresented communities.
1: The Risa wrap up. Special thanks for Dr. Barbara Ross Lee for joining me in conversation. I loved it. I think it's safe to say that Barbara completely understood the Risa personality and Risa feels as if Risa completely understood the Barbara personality. Some take-home points, listeners. Number one, words matter. Be deliberate, be careful, and intentional with your words. Number two, choose policy over politics. Number three, be a changemaker. Barbara prefers to be considered a changemaker over a leader. But wink, let's be clear. Barbara is a leader. Finally, the role of community and family. When Barbara shares her story and her professional journey, it's very clear that as an anchor, family and community brought her along. When she had questions, when she felt unsure, when she didn't have a clear path, or when she needed resources, it was her community and it was family that brought her along. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of the People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano Deporto and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.